Hello, hello. My name be Randy. I be the bass player tonight. If anybody's got some spare skin, I could use some. If you've never never tried playing guitar or probably violin or any stringed instrument, you wouldn't have a clue. But if you have, the uh, first weeks and months are torture. And if you only play once every three months, it's really torture. So anyway, it's good to be with us. I guess we will work on... Uh, are you there, Martha? Are we, are we up? No, we're not up yet. Okay, well, I'll move forward and... Uh, you can play ketchup, I guess. Ketchup? Anybody like ketchup? You like mustard instead? Okay, we got ketchup. I hate ketchup myself, but anyway. For the last um, third of 2006, we were looking at the topic of the kingdom of God and learned that in and through the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the powers and the life of God's future heavenly kingdom and realm broke into our world. And rather than this climactic final ending of the world as most of the prophets believed and many in in Israel would have believed, the beginning of God's future heavenly realm, instead the powers and life of God's future heavenly realm have broken into our world simultaneously while this evil age continues. And that creates a war zone. Does that make sense? And it's it's similar to the inbreaking of a an army onto a new continent or location, beach, whatever you want to describe. Following Jesus's commissioning by the Father through baptism in water and the Holy Spirit, following his trial and his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus, Luke tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the power of God stood up in church that Sunday and he declared war on Satan and his kingdom. Luke describes this in chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, where he says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And as he stood up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him and he said to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And in these words, Jesus declared war on the enemy and on his domain, that which he controls and influences, the poor, those in bondage, the sick, the oppressed. Jesus came to do battle with Satan and to establish the rule of God where the rule of Satan had been. Apostle Paul underlines this in 1 John 3.8 where he says, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Following this declaration of war, Jesus then went out and did what he declared he would do. 
And he implemented basically what I'm calling stage one of his war strategy. Matthew describes this um, in this way in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. During this time, Jesus is, is ministering in a small geographical area, not far from his hometown, just kind of a few little towns around that area. And Jesus is being followed and watched by his disciples. But then there is a transition in the middle of his ministry. Matthew tells us this in Matthew 9, 35-38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. So we see him basically now doing the same thing, preaching the good news and healing every sickness, but now he has expanded that, still a part of stage one. But here comes the transition. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And if any of you know, that's the end of chapter 9, and then comes chapter 10, and there is the beginning of stage 2. In this final part of this stage, Jesus is doing the same thing he'd been doing. He had started in Nazareth, his hometown, then it spread to the nearby communities, then it went to all the cities and all the villages, but then Jesus commissions those who had been watching and listening to now begin doing what they had seen him do. Matthew 10, change, Jesus charged the 12 disciples in 10, 6 and 8 and says, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, announce the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, and cast out demons. The same commission that Jesus himself was functioning under. In Luke 10.1, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers. So it's not just limited to the 12, but now it's expanding to others. In Luke 6.40, Jesus says that the end result of their training is for his followers to be like him, their instructor. And then in John 14.12, Jesus says actually that the goal for his followers is for them to go beyond what he did and do even greater works than he did. Now, we really ought to be sort of getting a little sweaty at this point. Because I look at the stories of what Jesus did, which are really cool. Casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. You know, walking through a town and funerals going on. Mom's crying behind the pyre with her only son. Jesus looks at it, is moved with compassion. Get up, boy. 
He rises from the dead. But John tells us that Jesus declared that we were going to do greater things than he did. Anybody raised anybody from the dead lately? Now, my wife actually has had, we've told this story before, my wife has had three different uh, encounters, three, four, three, primary encounters throughout her years where she has interacted with the raising of the dead. I'll let her tell that story again someday. That's stage two. These other disciples are now being spread out and going throughout all of Israel. But then finally in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, Jesus declares stage three of his war plan, which is for all who follow him to continue to expand and further his ministry by going into no longer just Israel now, but all the world, announcing and demonstrating the kingdom, recruiting new workers and soldiers and training them to do what Jesus had done. Then in Acts 1, Jesus describes how and where they will do this, just like he did. Commissioned by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, beginning at home and then expanding to the world. Sounds real exciting. So what seems to be the problem? Well, one of the privileges of the era that we live in is the benefit of electrical appliances, electrical lights, heating Most of our homes have lights, uh, air conditioners, stoves, refrigerators, toasters, uh, coffee makers, microwave ovens, uh, dishwashers, washing machines, TVs, sound systems, on and on we could go. But how many of you have ever been at your house when there has been a power outage in the neighborhood? Anybody? Now, at first, that can be kind of fun. Around our house, you know, we've, Clara has candles throughout the house, and so there's a power outage. We light the candles and... I'm sorry, we don't have the PowerPoint. Uh, It's not on my thing? Wow, that's too bad. I had some really cool pictures. That's right. This is a a nice dark scene of a living room with candles on. (laughs) Picture it in your mind. But anyway, around our house, usually if we've got time and nothing else is going on, we'll often say, hey, let's play cards. And so we gather all the little lights on the table and do that. But, But if a power outage goes on too long we can begin to get worried, can't we? You know, is the food going to spoil in the refrigerator? You know, how are we going to cook dinner? How am I going to get up in the morning without my alarm clock? Unless your phone is working, but then again, maybe your phone stops. I don't know. And worst of all, what am I going to do to get my coffee in the morning? I mean, what am I going to do? I guess hopefully Starbucks will be open, right? Well, can you imagine building a new home This is a picture of my home being built right now. Installing all the appliances and the stuff, but then the power company never comes to hook up the electricity. Got this great nice house, all the stuff's there, fridge, but there's no meter on the power box. There's a picture right now of a power box without a meter on it. Well, that wouldn't work, would it? And it's not very imaginable. That's why I needed a picture to show you. Well, living the Christian life Without the power of the Holy Spirit is a bit like having a house without the power hooked up. We can have everything we need for life and godliness, as Peter tells us, as we do in 2 Peter 1.3. But if we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit connected and activated in our life, it'll be like living in a house without electricity. We can hear the commission of Jesus to go into the world and make disciples, to 
initiate and train them. We can hear the command of Jesus to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We can hear the command of Jesus to love others more than ourselves. We can hear the command of Paul to not gratify the desires of the flesh. But if we're not connected to the power source, we're going to be a little hard-pressed to do any of the above. Try and cook something on your stove without electricity or gas. It's a little tough. Matches will work for a little while, but you know, it just doesn't get that frying pan very hot. And as we launch into a new year, looking to live within the realm of God's kingdom, participating in Jesus' war strategy, and living a life fully pleasing to Him, then I want to talk about connecting to the power source of the Holy Spirit. But before we do that, let's pray and invite Him to come help us. Holy Spirit, we do welcome you. Come and be here with us and accomplish your mighty deeds. Greater things are possible today because Jesus has gone to be with the Father and he has sent you to live in us and to do his work through us. And we welcome you. Turn the power on. Connect us up. Hook us up. And might we be responsive to what you have in store for this year. As we consider becoming more sensitive seekers, might we learn to know your voice, to sense your presence, to see what you're doing and to partner with you. Father, I pray for our guests that are here tonight that have come searching, looking for something more. Some perhaps for the first time in church in a long time. Others just trying to find that place to connect. I welcome you to meet them and for them to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us about what was probably the last talk Jesus had with his followers. Acts 1, 3 through 5 says, During the 40 days after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared to his followers and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. On these occasions, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And in one of these meetings, as he was eating a meal with them, he told them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he has promised. Remember, I've told you this before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells his followers here that they need to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And then he speaks of his followers receiving a baptism of the Holy Spirit, two different Phrases. Then in verses, a couple of verses later in Acts chapter 1 8, Jesus gives further explanation to the disciples. He says, But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven, leaving them open mouthed, gawking into heaven. I can just imagine it, can't you? There's a picture right now. 
They're kind of standing around, scratching their heads. What was that? What in the world is he talking about? But they obeyed. And they stayed in Jerusalem. They continued to meet together for prayer and relationship. And then 12 days later, Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse Acts, suddenly a sound like the roaring of a violent driving wind came from the sky and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on their heads and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in languages they didn't know as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, I don't know about you, but if we were someplace where that happened, I think most of us would be pretty freaked out. Imagine a room, you know, maybe this size, maybe smaller, maybe 50 to 80 people, about what we have here. They're fervently praying, and suddenly they hear something that sounds like a hurricane, a tornado, just engulfing the house where they were at. They see this swirling ball of flames come ripping down out of heaven like a meteorite or a comet or something hitting the earth. It fills the room and then this fire begins to separate and settle on each person's head, making them look like a bunch of Roman candles. I mean, this, this, this has to be just an incredibly bizarre, unique experience. That would be freaky, wouldn't it? Now, this phenomenon did not go unheard. This was not just a little vision thing that was happening to this little group. But this sound and this sight was visible to thousands and thousands of visitors who were present for the Passover there in Jerusalem. And a crowd gathered around them. And as that crowd began to question and speculate what was happening, because the languages that were being spoken by these disciples, these Galilean hicks, had an Israeli drawl, I don't know what it would have been, but they were considered hicks. Very distinct. If you remember the the uh, case with Peter one time when he was standing around the fire after Jesus' uh, arrest, they recognized him by his accent. Because he's a hick. So here are these hicks, all speaking, but people from all over the known world at the time were present, hearing the good news of God in their own languages. And they were hearing and being described to them were God's great deeds of power. That's what they were hearing about. In an attempt to respond to the crowd, the Apostle Peter stands up. He raises his voice so people can hear him. How they can hear thousands out there. I mean, there's 50, 70 of you here. I'm using a microphone. He was speaking to thousands without it. But they had means and ways to do that. So Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice. He was probably yelling. And he addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. 
The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To help us understand this empowerment, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it was, I want to look at these phrases and these statements by Peter from the book of Joel. Firstly, he says, these men are not drunk. Kind of funny that he had to say that. I suspect it was because they were acting like they were drunk. That's probably what we can get from that. So something is happening that is not just this nice, quiet, simple, neat little situation, but instead is a phenomenon that is affecting and impacting these individuals' ability to relate, to speak, to stand We don't know. It doesn't say. All we know is that they were acting like they were drunk. Secondly, he says, this is that. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Yay! Bless you all. I only spent eight hours on it yesterday. I really did. I spend as much time on this as I do on my sermon, which is probably under question at this point. But anyway... I do. I I think it's fun. I enjoy it. I hope you do. Peter says, this is that. This is what the prophet Joel was talking about. And then he goes on to say all these things. As the Holy Spirit fell on these followers and all this stuff happened, Peter remembered the words of Jesus spoken to them 12 days before. Jesus had said, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he promised. In just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Peter grasped that what had just happened was what Jesus had told them about. This is what they had been waiting for. This is what they had been praying for. This was the promise of the Father. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon and filling them with his power. And so Peter declares, this is the promise of the Father spoken through the Old Testament prophet Joel. Then he says, in the last days. Today, Peter says, is the beginning of the last days. Now, in Christian church over the last hundred years, there has been a lot of speculation, different theological orientations and positions about when the last days are coming. And there's been movies and book series and all kinds of things talking about a someday when the last days will arrive. But what we understand about the um, establishment of the kingdom of God through Jesus and his ministry, the coming of this Holy Spirit at this point, and the declaration of Peter is that the last days began that day. And we have been in the last days ever since then. Now someday there will be the last days of the last days, or the last day of even the last days. I mean, there is going to be that, but we have been in that. So as you read passages from the Old Testament or the New Testament about the last days, we're in it. So at any moment, the inbreaking of those kinds of things can be happening. I'm just going to interject. Don't have time to interject, but I'm going to interject this as well. The book of Revelation is a very difficult and challenging book to understand. Uh, it's, it is... Uh, metaphorical language, um, make a great, it would make a great movie because we'd all be left at the end going, huh? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, you know how you watch movies and 
And you don't know what was, well, that's kind of the story. But I'm just going to make a suggestion to you. I, I personally am oriented in, a, a, in somewhat of a unique position. I'm not alone in this position, but it's called an amillennial position. If you want to read about it or call me a heretic right now, you can. No, wait till after the service. But I will advocate this out of it. If you want to read the book of Revelation this way, um, those who understand it positionally this way will say that there are three different accounts in the book of Revelation that are duplicating the same story. So rather than it being a narrative at somewhere around chapter 3 or 4 that begins and you know all those things and then comes the end, it's, the story is being told three different times, three different ways. If you read the book of Revelation and you like that, talk to me later and I'll give you more information about it. The ends, the, how it ends is the same. Whether you're post-trib, pre-trib, past-trib, you know, it all, all trib comes and goes and we all get there and Jesus reigns forever. I mean, all the stuff in between that, that many have argued over is, is really not all that helpful, which is why I don't teach that material uh, very often. I, I think the better thing is to go to Matthew where Jesus very clearly says what, what we'd be doing during the last days and that is we should be busy at work which is uh, Matthew chapter 23, 24, there where he talks real clearly about the last days. Okay, going on. So he's talking about the last days. In the last days, Paul in Romans chapter 13, 12 says, The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us therefore live honorably as in the day, as if it were the day. It's a powerful passage. Be living now as if this is the last day. Advocating sin. This this dark period, this evil age that we live in is passing away. And friends, it's a whole lot more passing away now than it was 2,000 years ago. Now it's still present. Look around, look at your neighbor. (laughs) It's still present. But it's passing away. And and Paul's advocacy is that we need to live as if we were living that last day. It would change the way you live. It would. But most of us are caught in the, oh, well, well, someday it's coming. So right now I have other things I need to be working on. Then he says, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. God is a respecter of people. So much so that it matters to him that his spirit is poured out on poor people as well as rich. People with education as well as people without education. People of color as well as people without color. I know that's not politically correct, but anyway. Men as well as women. Children and teenagers. Everybody. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on All kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. This thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not intended to be, nor is it something we're to pursue so that we have a good feeling or that we feel good about ourselves. Now this event, this empowerment is about the power of God. It's about the 
deeds of God. It's about the revelation of God. It's about people hearing God's voice and declaring the things of God. It's about healing the sick, casting out demons, and giving encouraging words. It's about the ministry works and message of Jesus. It's about caring for the hungry, the poor, and those in prison. It's about evangelism with our friends and family and neighbors. It's about missions to those who are culturally different from us. It's about light dispelling darkness. It's about the rule and reign of God kicking the butt of the enemy. That's what it's about. Experiences, encounters, baptisms of the Holy Spirit, and they have been cool. And we could stand up here and tell Holy Ghost stories, and we could be encouraged But it is not for those good feelings that we once had. It's about tomorrow. It's about tonight. And how we're relating to one another and how we're relating to the lost. Then Peter, still quoting from the book of Joel, says, I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, all heaven's going to break loose. And all hell is going to be bound and cast down. Judgment is going to fall. And those who have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus and have lived their lives according to the will of God for the covering of their sins will be saved. And those who have lived their lives according to what they think is best will be cast down into hell for all eternity. If Jesus were to come back today or tomorrow, Are you ready? Are your family members ready? Are your friends ready? Are your neighbors, co-workers, fellow students ready? Jesus is coming back. And the Bible says it's soon. Now soon to God and soon to us, well, you know, that's a whole other thing. But it's soon. And we all know of the tragedies of those whose lives have been cut short as young people or middle-aged I think it was just last week I heard about a um, 35-year-old woman dying of a heart attack in somebody's work. Fireman, I can't think who was telling me that story. Are we ready? Jesus is coming back. And then Peter concludes his quote from the prophet Joel by saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about you and me coming to the end of ourselves calling out to God for forgiveness of our sins, changing the direction of our lives, making a change of lifestyle, pursuing the presence of God to fill us and empower us to live godly, sin and bondage-free lives and to be his witnesses in our homes, neighborhoods, city, state, country and world. And it is not a one-time event, but it is something that we must daily experience as we live our lives partnering with God continuing the ministry of Jesus and doing what the Father is doing. We must have this empowerment. It is not optional. You might live as if it's optional, but it's like the house. You can have a wonderful house, but without electricity, it'd be tough. And the same thing's true of our lives. We can live... Without the empowerment, we can live as if the Holy Spirit is not empowering us. We can live as if we're not connected to the power source, but we won't get very much done according to the things of God. Now, as as incredible and awesome as that is, 
If I were to simply very quickly do a poll here, I would imagine that you all, like me, would say, I've heard this before. It sounds really good. But earlier today or yesterday, I yelled at somebody or I did this or that, and I'm not seeing and experiencing this as much as it seems like Jesus suggested that we should be. I've been a Christian for a long time and have had many baptisms and fillings of the Holy Spirit. Yet my life still doesn't look as much like Jesus as I wish it did. While it is very much my hope and desire to live my life fully for God, loving him and others and continuing the ministry of Jesus, what I find way too often as I look in the mirror is a rather weak, regularly stumbling, selfish human being. Who do you see in the mirror? We've talked before when we were talking about the kingdom of God being present even while this evil age continues and that for us as followers of Jesus, while the Holy Spirit is present in our lives, while we're here on earth, our evil human nature is still present and this war goes on even in us. So is there a way to see our evil human nature overcome by the Holy Spirit so that we can become more and more like Jesus? I believe there is. Two weeks ago, did we lose the the slideshow? We did. I had this really cute picture up there. Well, I'm not quite. Yeah, she's about where I am right now, but you missed the really cute. Back up and show them the cute picture. Can you Can you go backwards at all? No? Anyway. It was a cute picture of me kind of really being messed up. Yeah, there's me. That's what I look like in the morning. <laughs> Not all that I would like to be, right? Two weeks ago, I spent uh, five days uh, alone on a spiritual retreat, and one of the things I did was I read a, a new book uh, that has recently come out on the teaching of the Christian life by John Wimber, who is one of the founders of the Christian life. Uh, founders, founders of the Christian life. Founders of the Vineyard uh, Churches. Sorry about that. Jesus was the founder of the Christian life. <laughs> the title of uh, his book is The Way In is the Way On. And uh, having been around the Vineyard since the early 80s, I, I heard John teach this uh, much of this material and has impacted me, and it was helpful to be reminded of uh, some of this again. And I want to touch on this as we conclude Just as there is a tendency for us prior to coming to Jesus to try and do religious deeds and activities to earn God's favor, so there is a tendency for us after we've come to Christ, even after we've experienced the power of God through the Holy Spirit, to fall back to trying to do the good things of God in our own strength. Anybody know about that besides me? Okay, we think Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. I have my ticket to heaven, but I better watch out. I better not cry. I better not pout. I'm telling you why, because God is expecting me to not be naughty or nice, but to be good and not bad. That's how we live. In John Wimber's material in The Way In Is The Way On, he advocates that just as we received God's forgiveness and gift of salvation as a result of his mercy and grace through Jesus' completed work on the cross, so the way that we're to live our lives as Christians is the same. 
through receiving God's mercy and grace through Jesus' completed work on the cross. Okay, heard that before as well. Some of you, sounds great. How do I do that? Well, let's review something here for a minute before I answer that. I like backing up the Genesis. I do it a lot because I think it's a helpful place to remind ourselves of. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we learn that in making humankind into his image, God gave to them a stewardship, a kingdom. God said, be masters over the earth and all these created things on the earth. Rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea and the animals. Oversee this world and steward it. And in full cooperation with me, let's continue to nurture and enhance the beauty of this created place. His plan and purpose was that we would fully exercise our will, but in complete harmony with his will. And together we would do something magnificent with our world. That was his plan. But we all know that plan was short-circuited. As humankind became seduced, we rebelled from God. We rebelled against the plan that would set up, that would have us that, and we decided to set up our own kingdom independently of God. The challenge is, as far from gaining autonomy, we lost the overarching protection of God's kingdom, and we were drawn into bondage into another kingdom, one of darkness, that now rules us and our land. So back to our question, how do we live our Christian lives receiving God's mercy and grace through Jesus' completed work on the cross? Well, how did you receive God's forgiveness and gift of salvation as a result of mercy and grace through Jesus' completed work on the cross? How did you receive it for salvation? Anyone? Faith? Asked for it? Prayed? From the Holy Spirit initiation? We received it. Somebody said we sought it. How about submitted to it? How about accepted it? How about welcomed God's leadership? How about repentance? God, I'm not getting it done very well. I think I need you. No, I know I need you. Can't get from here to there by myself. Can't turn on the electricity. Don't know how. Don't know where it's coming from. Well, what happened in the garden was that we rejected God's leadership and partnership. We said, you know, I think I can do a better job than you can. But we were wrong. And we've had pretty messed up lives as a result. Isn't that true? Open the newspaper, right? Turn on the news. Look at your neighbor. Look in the mirror. So whether it's forgiveness and salvation, whether it's loving others, loving our spouse, being a good employee, obeying the speed laws, or not living with addictions, what we need to do is receive, accept, and submit to God's grace and mercy. We have to welcome God's leadership. The opposite of doing what I think is best. Let's look at three examples from the life of Jesus. 
very quickly and then we'll be done. In the temptation of Jesus, we're told that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit where he fasted for 40 days and nights and was tempted by the devil. In the first recorded temptation, we're told the devil came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, this is an illustration of how to live the Christian life. Okay, that's what we're talking about. I'm giving you three examples. This is the first one. And Jesus says the way to do it is not by gratifying our desires, not by doing what we think would be best. Jesus, I'm sure, in that moment could have really valued some nice hot bread. Cold, hard bread, maybe not. You know, I think I, if I were he, I would have made it nice and steamy hot. Yesterday, I just so desperately wanted, I like glazed donuts. And I really don't like uh, the new brand of Krispy Kremes, real honestly. They're okay, but I really don't care for I like the old-fashioned, plain old, regular, soft glazed donuts, like Shipley's has them. So yesterday morning, I got my coffee, and I headed down to uh, work at the church apartment, and I stopped at Shipley's. And uh, they handed me the bag, dollar twenty-seven cents later. I got two of them. And I went to pull it out of the bag. Well, the thing was like liquid. It had just come out of the oven. It was just out of the oven. I mean, it was, I had to set it back down. It was so hot. And the icing was all melting all over my hands. And when I bit into it, it was just this soft, oh gosh, it was great. That's probably what I would have done if I'd been Jesus. Nice, hot glazed donut but Jesus didn't do that Jesus said okay I can gratify my desires and do what I think is best or I can live according to the word of God hmm let's see hmm I don't know that's kind of a hard choice let's see I don't think that's what he did at all it doesn't sound like it he says sorry Charlie I'm only going to do what God says to do. And what you say just really doesn't ring for me right now. Fast forward. Count number two, John chapter four. Jesus and disciples are on a road trip. They've stopped off in Samaria to pick up some burgers and fries. Jesus is waiting for them out at the rest stop where he encounters a woman whom he basically leads to faith in God. Disciples return with lunch and They're encouraging Jesus to eat. And in John 42, Jesus says basically, no thanks, I've got food you don't know about. They're scratching their heads and going, what, did somebody bring him something or what? What, did he keep something in his backpack? Disciples are confused. They're each wondering what in the world he's talking about. Then Jesus tells them his key to life. Friends, this is the key to life. He says in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to teleos his work, complete, bring to fruition, bring to complete wholeness. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Fast forward again. Jesus is now in the Garden of Gethsemane, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, I might mention. It's the night before his crucifixion. He is emotionally overwhelmed, facing what is ahead of him the next day. 
Three times in intense emotional agony, Jesus asks God if there is any other way than for him to have to go through that torture and pain. And th- But three times, Jesus ends his request with, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want, but what you want. Not what I think is best what you think is bad. Not what feels good right now at the moment, but what you think is right. Here, friends, is the key to the empowered Christian life. Here is the key to living victoriously in Christ. Here is the key to loving others, loving your spouse, being a good employee, obeying the speed laws, and not living with addictions. Not what I want, but what you want, O oh God. I heard a saying once that said God doesn't ask us to live a holy life. He simply asks us to live a holy moment. Instead of trying to reign over our own kingdom and life, instead of exercising our will according to what we think is best, we very simply respond and make decisions based on what God thinks is best. We need to become very familiar with the truth and principles that he's given us in the scriptures. And we need to get up each morning receiving, accepting, and submitting to God's grace and mercy, welcoming his leadership, and living the moments of our lives according to what he thinks is best. Because, friends, our self-leadership has not worked. And what God thinks is best is best. One of the things that I think for most of us, if we were to implement this, our lives would need to slow down. Somebody says something to us, and probably if we respond back very quickly with our gut reaction, we are not going to be responding according to what God thinks is best. Most of the time. So, in a situation with your boss, in your car, with your daughter, the best thing to do is to slow down, to pause, and ask the Father, before you make a fool of yourself and do what you think is best, Father, what's best in this situation? I had a friend uh, this week describe to me something that he learned about me uh, early on. Uh, We've known each other for some time, and I I really didn't think about this about me, but as he described it, it it is how I have tended to live my life much of the time. And he particularly described how my children, when they were younger, would come to me and ask something. Can I do this? Can I go there, do this thing? And he remembers watching me pause and consider their request and then respond. Now, what he saw and what he shared with me is that in that moment, my children knew I loved them because I was taking the time to consider their need and their request. Clara read a book when we were quite young parents 
And the author made a suggestion, if at all possible, say yes to your children. Now, there are surely times when we need to say no. Absolutely. But, way too often, parents responding out of their gut, kind of being bothered by the ask, no. And I just use this as an illustration to you that Life's going to need to look different if God is leading your life and if you are submitted to His will and to doing the food of the Father. You're going to need to check in and you're going to need to figure out what it is He wants in this moment and in the next. Last night, we had a a circumstance uh, in our home. We were going to watch a movie and there was a circumstance that occurred between one of my children and I, and I didn't pause. And I didn't think through what I was saying. And I responded out of my place of emotional weakness and low self-image and feeling judged or condemned and trying to defend myself. And my wife, my God-wife, my friend-of-God-wife, very appropriately rebuked me in the moment and helped me to identify the inappropriateness of my response. And at the end of a very nice, lovely, romantic, lovey-dovey movie, I asked for forgiveness from my daughter for my inappropriate responses. And don't think I did anything like that yet today. But if I do, I will do the same thing. Because that too, when we fail, because we're going to, to simply do what we're taught in the Bible to do, which is simply confess our sins and acknowledge and say, yep, I did it. Rather than the pride and the lifting myself up, well, they deserved it. (laughs) You know, yeah, we all deserved it. But somebody died on a cross. And paid the penalty for everything that any of us ever deserved. Last week and earlier today, Dave and Mariana shared with us about fasting. And Claire and I and our church board, as they mentioned, are inviting you to join us in a 40-day time to fast and pray. To assist us as people and as a congregation to become more sensitive seekers of God. And for some of us, I'm confident this is going to be tough. But I believe if we will do it the way Jesus did, receiving and accepting and submitting to God's grace and his mercy, welcoming his leadership, welcoming the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, then it has the potential for being an opportunity for practicing living for God by putting off Something to deny something that we would crave or want or desire in our humanity. I fasted last time from sweet tea. Now that sounds really crazy and kind of stupid and kind of weird, but I tell you, any of you who drink sweet tea, I'm sure you can agree with me, you know, it's kind of an addictive drug. And it, it kind of gets the body going, and when you don't have it, there's this craving there, like other addictions. 
And so it gave me the opportunity throughout the day when I would have liked to have gone and gotten it, to remember and feel that and deny that and be renewed in my mind. That's right, Lord. Sweet tea is not needed for life and godliness. (laughs) And to put on the activity of gracious kindness to someone else. No, just kidding. And I haven't fully resolved uh, what I am uh, doing yet. Um, this time I had I have some leading and some interest, but I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing. It's I'm still working on that. In your programs, is that where they went, Clara? You will find a little um, commitment card that has the picture of the uh, program, the bulletin, the handout, the flyer, booklet thing, journal thing. And on it um, is the identification of the days of the fast, your name, what it is you're fasting from, a support partner. We would highly, highly, highly encourage you to share with at least one other person. If you're in a small group or in a committed men's group or women's group or something or prayer little group, you may want to do it there if you just want to do it with one person. But we highly encourage you don't just walk this out alone. Jesus always sent the disciples out two by two. Alone, we're open to all kinds of horrible, horrific things. But two are stronger. And three, if we add the Holy Spirit to it, it's even better. And then um, there's the, the commitment statement. Now, we're not asking you to turn this in. This is for you. This is a commitment card for you to fill out between you and God and your support individual. Put it in your Bible photocopy it 18 times, put it everywhere and round to remind you. I don't know what you need to do, but we have provided that as a tool to help you to be able to make that commitment. I'm going to pray and invite the Holy Spirit now just to close us here in this time. I'm not sure what exactly he wants to do, so I want to give some space to him and we're kind of over time so I don't want to um, be obnoxious, but I do want to give him an opportunity. Father, thank you that you have provided to us everything we need for life and godliness. That it was and is your plan to transform us into the very image of Jesus. That instead of the one Jesus who walked around 2,000 years ago, or even the one plus the 12, or the one plus the 72, that you saw that what was best and what was going to be needed was the multiplication of Jesus to where there were hundreds of thousands, millions of Jesuses to encounter the billions of people on our planet. Tag your it. We were your plan. And you don't have a backup. Father, we thank you for our ticket to heaven. That's a great thing. 
Tickets to fun places are great. But being in a fun place is even better. And your desire was not for us simply to experience eternal life someday when we're in heaven, but abundant, super abundant life even now. And that super abundant life will not be found by doing what we think is best. It's going to be found by submitting to you and accepting and welcoming and embracing what you have said is best. Father, I am, I am confident that everyone in this room really, really wants to do what's pleasing to you. But we're caught in a war. A war in our world and a war inside of us. A battle. Lord, we read the end of the book and it says you win. I'm really happy about that. But Lord, I want you to win tonight too. And tomorrow. And next week and next year. I want you to, I want you to win in my life and my kids' lives. I want you to win in my grandkids' lives and their kids' lives. And the only way that's going to come about is men and women gathered together for support and mutual encouragement to stand against the wiles of the devil, to stand against the manipulations of our own evil nature, the draw of the world, and say no to the things that are leading to death and to say yes to Jesus again. Most of us have said yes to Jesus once, at least once in our life. Yes, I welcome you into my life. I accept your salvation. But we need to say yes to Jesus again. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I say yes again to you. I say yes to what is best And I say no to me. mean to um, cause any undue duress to anyone that's here that is not able at this moment to do what I'm going to ask you to do. I would ask that you would have the grace to do what you need to do and not to be swayed by me or pressure from those around you. But if you here this afternoon want to say yes to Jesus for the first time or again, I'd like to invite you to come forward. If you would like to say yes to God, 
and to say yes to his will and to say no to your will. I just welcome you to come on up to the front. Father, I'm reminded of the time Jesus spoke about his, the shedding of his blood and his body. And that many of his disciples turned away and they said, this is just too hard of a saying. Jesus, you said that the, the way to life is tight and afflicted. And wide and easy is the road to destruction. And many are they that find it. Jesus, you said as well that those who would follow you must deny themselves, take up the implement of death, the cross, and follow you. And you went through suffering and pain and rejection and exhilaration from seeing people get healed and saved, delivered, trained, helped, blessed, families brought back together and restored. What exhilaration that is. But in the midst of that, your very family and the church leaders thought you were crazy and demonized. And so they will think of us. but I welcome you right now to crucify us, to kill us. January 14th, 2007, to die to ourselves and to live to Christ. And then again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next. It's so easy to want to climb out out of that coffin I say to you again, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Father, we're each on a journey here. 
Some have been on this journey for a long time and they have said yes to you every day of their lives since they have come to know you. Great will be their reward. And then there's many of us who have struggled, who have fallen and stumbled, who have perhaps come to you late in life. And we have said yes to you, Lord, and great will be our reward. For the pay is all the same. Forgiveness and salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for all of us. We welcome you. Crucify us tonight. Have your way. Might we never arise again in our own flesh, but be able to say, as Paul the Apostle did, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Father, take our hand. However far we are from you or however near, whatever direction we're facing towards you or walking away, and draw us to life. Draw us again to what is best and not what we think is best. And might we be those who then arise as little Christs, Christians, who preach the good news, tell of God's love and forgiveness share of his saving grace and mercy. Heal the sick. Cleanse the leper. Raise the dead. Lord, you are still looking for workers for the harvest. You are still longing for partners who will steward and reign with you to see your kingdom established here on earth. Here we are. Here am I. Send me. Here are we. Send us. you're here at the front, I'd welcome you just to stay for a couple more moments as I dismiss. If you would like, or if you feel you're complete, you can go ahead and head out as well. If any of the rest of you would like an opportunity to uh, talk with uh, one of us or to pray with one of us, if you want to come off over to this other side over here, a few of us will be here available to talk further with you about um, the things that God is stirring in you as well as uh, an opportunity to help you know more about Jesus or to pray about any other need that you might have. So we would love that opportunity. The rest, thank you. Bless you all for being here with us. Go grab your kids. I'm sorry it's so late. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you next week. Mm